0: Number 10, Managing for the Master, First Quarter, 2023, Daniel Duda.
1: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to start Lesson 10, Giving Back on the Quarter, Managing for the Master, till he comes. Dr. Daniel Duda is our moderator, and Jane is going to offer the opening prayer.
2: And a loving Father, in the mighty name of Jesus, we come before your presence this time. We are so grateful for your love, your tender care, O God. You've been so good for us throughout the week, O God. You have led us mercifully, O Lord, and here we are. We thank you for this wonderful rest. Now, dear Lord, we thank you for this entire family, the final ministry that we are going to share your word this morning. We pray everlasting Father that your Holy Spirit will be in all our discussions, oh God. And wherever this word lands, oh God, may it bring revival and healing, oh God. Father, we thank you for our moderator, Daniel. May you be with him. May you continue giving him more and more wisdom, even as he guides us, oh God. May you bless each and everyone who is here today, oh Lord, and may you make us better managers of every talent that you've given us. This is our humble and sincere prayer this morning in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.
3: Amen. Thank you, Jane. And welcome everybody to lesson number 10. The title of the lesson is Giving Back. And if you look under number one, it's looking at the last years, meaning Last years of personal life. Under number two, it says that the most common fears that people have regarding the future are dying too soon, and that means that your family is not taken care of, or living too long so that you outlive your assets or your savings, and then at the last part of your life, you are left without resources, or catastrophic illness, that your resources are gone and you are not in reasonable health. And then mental or physical disability, and that there will be no one around to take care of you. And the purpose of the lesson is how does the Bible help us to deal with these anxieties or fears that are common to people. Now... Of course, if the writings of Moses are in 1500 before Christ in an agrarian society, which is very different from the first world of America, Europe, Australia, or the majority world, Even today, once again, there is no direct connection between how you jump from the society of the Bible and how do you apply it in a complex society in which you and I live. And we have covered this many times. How do you cross this gap? And the way to do it is to ask, what is the principle behind the advice that is given in the Bible? And how does this principle apply in the society in which we live? Otherwise you are in danger of applying an application and that creates confusion because applications are always timely, local, cultural, while the principles are eternal and valid for all places and all times. And yeah, it will take engaging your mind. That's why Jesus said that you should love God with all your heart, with all your strength and with all your mind. Because if you don't engage the mind... You end up just like the Jews at the time of Jesus, that they do exactly the tying to the hands, tying to the forehead and following the text or the letter of what God commanded them. But Jesus says, you did not understand the purpose, what God intended when he commanded you these things. And so we don't want to be in danger of that. The key text of the whole lesson is a parable that Jesus said, and the parable is found in Luke 12, verses 16 to 21. Probably you have noticed that the memory text from Lesson 9 also came from this parable, and the memory text here is based on Revelation 14, speaking about the blessed are the dead which die in the Lord, that they rest from their labors and their works follow after them. So, Heaven sees death as a rest from the work, but the people are not forgotten and there is a reward for them. But let's go to Luke 12, verses 16 to 21 and see what we can learn from this.
4: Then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves but are not rich towards God.
3: Verses 13 to 21 are unique material to Luke. There is some parallel in Matthew to verses 22 to 34, which we will read later. None of this is found in Mark. So that's interesting that we have a unique material from Luke. And it starts with a public encounter that a man comes to Jesus and wants him to arbitrate in a property dispute with his brother which is a very interesting request for a rabbi because in the Jewish society, it's a different group of people. You don't go to a rabbi to arbitrate in a property dispute. Rabbis are there to interpret the Bible, not to give a legal opinion on how to divide the family estate. And Jesus responds with reflection and gives instruction to his disciples. Interestingly, Jesus refuses to engage in this dispute. Jesus refuses to be the Messiah people want him to be. So, a good leader doesn't respond to everything that people want them to do. This is none of my business. He makes a direct rebuke to the man. He warns him directly. Verse 15, be on your guard against all kinds of greed because... One's life does not consist in abundance of possessions. You are not what you own. So basically, Jesus says that if you are using your energy for accumulation of material things, remember, life is more than accumulation of material things. There are certain things that wealth cannot do for you. And then the second response is for everybody, for his disciples and his disciples down the ages for everybody, for all of us. And it's a parable of a rich man. He's the man who has enough, who owns land, that produces abundantly His crop produced so much that he needs more storage place. Now, the storage immediately in antecedent reading reminds you of Exodus 1.11. When Israelites were slaves in Egypt, they were building more storage facilities for Pharaoh because he was accumulating goods. And so you have the economy of extortion. Remember, because of what Joseph did in time of famine, people lose not only their money, People lose their connection with the fields. They all become pharaoh's fields. They have to sell those in order to buy food. And then he moves them to cities, so there is no connection with the ground, with the field. And so this is what the extortion society does to you, that you are left destitute. Now, what seems to be the problem in this parable? You see that his self-conglateral monologue of accumulation then is interrupted by God. The man addresses himself as a soul, as a psyche, but God says, you are not a soul, you are a fool. Now, I thought that Jesus says, you are not supposed to say you are a fool to anybody. Yet God says to him, you are a fool. So what seems to be the reason why he deserves such a harsh response from God? Any reactions or any responses? What did you see in the text when you read the parable? Lou?
5: I think it's because his priorities were wrong, was all about accumulation, And that's not where God wants any of us to be. And one of my very favorite little sayings that I just love goes like this. Said the robin to the sparrow, why do all those humans run to and fro and worry like they do? Said the sparrow to the robin, I don't know. They must not have a loving heavenly father like me and you. Okay, thank you. Michael? This parable, among other things, it's about our relationship to God. What is really important? And what is it, the old saying where three score plus 10 years and that a long life and so forth. Although Barbara and I have exceeded that, but not by very much. But the point is we're only here for a short period of time and we're measuring that circumstance versus eternity. And it makes me think of Prince of Assisi prayer where he said, it's in dying that we're born to eternal life. That's really the important thing is keep our lives structured with love of God and love of our fellow man. And I'm not going to, go hungry today, I don't have millions of dollars, but I have enough. And that's the important thing. Not a great deal of wealth, but I have enough.
3: Okay, and that's an important aspect of wanting more. Notice, his accumulation is designed to secure his life, but ultimately leads to his death. Jane? I
2: would just like to point out that this particular person has no regard either for God or for men. First, he didn't want to give any of the tithe or offering. Being an Israelite, whenever they had fast fruits or anything, their first obligation was to give back to God. And then they also were to leave some for the poor. But this rich fool has none of those coming out of his conversation. That's what I pointed out.
3: Okay, thank you, Henry.
6: First of all, I won't be concerned about the calling him fool because it's a parable only. So it is not necessarily God saying that to that person, but it's just an illustration. That will be the first point that I want to make. Nothing of concern. That's not the way that God treats anybody, and he actually, as you mentioned, said, you should not be calling fool anybody." And he didn't. It's just a story made for illustration purposes. And the second part, I think that the strong rebuke on this story is that this man is already rich. He has no needs for anything else. But now he is concerned about what to do with that abundant crop that he had. So instead of, okay, looking at that, now he is worrying advice have been don't be anxious of what are you going to be eating or dressing. But this man now becomes anxious about how to manage this additional income that he's receiving and he's making plans when there is absolutely no need. I mean, he is already a well-said man. So I think that's the foolishness when you are worrying about something that is not actually a problem for you. Excellent.
3: Excellent, Henry. Let's read Ecclesiastes 4, 7, 8, because it's obvious from verse 20 that he does not have an immediate family. He does not have heirs. So the accumulation has no future for him. Terry, Ecclesiastes 4, 7, and 8.
4: Again, I saw vanity under the sun, the case of solitary individuals without sons or brothers. Yet there is no end to all their toil, and their eyes are never satisfied with riches. For whom am I toiling, they asked, and depriving myself of pleasure? This is also vanity and an unhappy business.
3: Can you see any connection? So, there is a text in the Old Testament that could be of help to him, yet he doesn't consider that. Let's go to Aaron. The
7: principle of giving. When we receive, if we don't give, we become like the Dead Sea, stagnant or inhospitable to life. And so, not only would it have been a blessing to others around him for him to share the bounty that God gave, but he also cut himself off from the blessing of life that it would have been to him if he had shared. So it's kind of a counterintuitive, the selfishness me first principle, I'm going to make my life easy and preserve all this for myself, actually is destructive.
3: So he operates on the economy of scarcity. There is not enough goods to go around, so I need to make sure that whatever was produced by the earth for me stays with me now remember genesis 12 when god calls abraham what's the purpose of that calling so that all the tribes of the earth are blessed through you and commandment number nine as we pointed out in previous lessons for the first time introduces the neighbor three times yet he does not think about okay if i have this extraordinary income that i did not expect How can this be a blessing to someone else? How can I fulfill the calling of Abraham as a son of Abraham? How can I fulfill what God has called us to be that blessing? And that's why Jesus introduces the economy of abundance that the Father cares and shares. He's the one who is constantly giving. Rita?
8: Yes, I was going to go to Ecclesiastes 5, which talks about riches being meaningless. And it seemed to me that what this man was doing was trying to find his own security, his self-worth and his significance through his own actions. He was accumulating it for himself to make himself feel secure and important and valued by society, whereas it was never going to do that. For
3: him. Yeah. And Jesus points out that his zeal, his direction is misplaced and is contrasting treasures stored up, being rich towards yourself that has no future, but it's being rich towards God in verse 21 that has the future. So Jesus brings the issue of possessions from self-centered into the presence of God where they are relative and relativized. Larry? In my
9: early life, I presumed that the parables that Christ used were stories that he made up. And one of the useful things from Ellen White's comments is that they were from stories that the people were familiar with because they were kind of like relevant current event things that people could immediately relate to because they were familiar with the story. So when you read this, in their culture... This man, because he was so rich, was believed to be blessed by God. And when you understand property development and construction, if he had simply added on to his barn, that would have been a reasonable thing to do. But the ultimate display of wealth is to buy a house, tear it down, and build an even better one. So he was not only just arrogant, but he was ostentatiously arrogant to demonstrate how he only took care of himself. And I think that when Christ says, you fool, like your comment earlier, yeah, be careful about who you address to that. But being that they were very familiar with the proverb, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And in his mental discussion that Christ is telling them, he in his mind is saying, I am my God, and he's pointing out the fallacy of that whole system to them.
3: Yes, thank you. Notice, so the man has an abundance of harvest. The earth produces more than he expected, and what does it lead to? It doesn't lead to rejoicing, it doesn't lead to gratitude, it leads to worry. Why is he worried? Because in his mind, he lives in the culture that is based on the economy of extraction. And that's why it's based on scarcity. He's afraid of scarcity. And so Jesus tells the parable to show that if you start from the position of scarcity, you will be preoccupied with worry. And it turns out that he cannot add to his life by worrying. And that's why in the commentary, which we didn't read yet, Jesus is saying, Don't worry, because it will not add to your life. It will not add to your food, to your clothing, to how tall you are. You can't change things that way. Actually, it's going to lead to the loss of your psyche, to your life. And remember, he addresses himself as psyche. And he is worried about surplus. He's not even worried that he doesn't have enough. As it was pointed out, he has more than enough. Dan? When you look at reality, one can distort it in
9: two ways some people call these distortions false positive false negative but basically they're sort of a distortions reality from a reasoning standpoint or an emotional standpoint but these people get something's right but if you go back to being called a fool i think that this person's reality was distorted both in the reasoning and the emotional side and so everything was distorted for him and so i think that this situation is sort of Unusual to have lost such contact with reality that everything is distorted on how he looks at life. And so I think it was appropriate that Christ called him a fool because his reality
3: was totally distorted. Okay. Thank you. Lou? I think
5: it's all about trust. And if I have trust in him, my focus will be on him and not on me and accumulating for myself. It will be maintaining my relationship with him. All right, Michael. The rich man, in my view, has got the wrong focus. The question is one of sufficiency. And enough has been said. The man for whom enough is insufficient will never be satisfied. And even if he hadn't died that night and built these other barns and filled them up, he would want more. And I think it's important for us to look around ourselves and just look, how's everything going right now, right this moment? Everything's just fine. Well, then stop worrying so much about what interest rates you're going to get on your certificate of deposit or whatever it might be, or the investments you've made on a piece of land, because that may never come to fruition. And yet, if we just relax and try to enjoy life that is given to us by Almighty God, and that means trying to share some of this abundance of wealth or whatever Talents we have with other people, because the only thing we have in this life is our relationship with one another and our relationship with God. Okay, thank you, uh, Sean. I'm curious,
10: Daniel, as to your thoughts and the group as well. Of is there not some degree of this extraction economy embedded into covenant land, people, and purpose? Seem to be the great Themes of covenant. And while I understand the purpose for extraction would be for giving and abundance would be for sharing and providing for the community, is there not some righteous purpose for extraction?
3: Any responses to Sean? Bob?
1: If you go back to the Garden of Eden story, it does sound like God gave us work to do. And somehow it changed the relationship with the land and the garden. Since we weren't there, it's hard to know exactly how that changed. But I've often wondered, because it did become where we were to labor and provide resources by hard work. But I'm not sure exactly how that fits into what Sean was raising. But does seem like God, if you look at some of the verses in Solomon and things we've talked about earlier, it does seem like we're told to you know go to the ant thou sluggard and you know, consider its ways and be wise something along that line where we are encouraged to work hard but then our goal can easily get off so i don't know just the thought because it did seem like the garden of eden situation changed things that way
11: yeah
3: so in the post fall society the relationships are different and notice how god's provision In Genesis, to save Egypt and Jacob's family, and notice God cares not only about Jacob's family, but the people of Egypt as well, the superpower of the day, the wicked, so to say, ultimately is distorted because of the economical policies. Probably there would be another way to run the thing, but Egypt becomes a symbol of anti-kingdom, that the idea of extortion economy is started there so that people are disconnected from their fields from where they have the connection they are moved to the cities where they can be easily exploited and it leads to slavery and so it's the example of the system which is based on greed and the systemic nature of evil where it leads that it starts with killing the brother and having no regard for the others and for other tribes etc and then God brings them out of Egypt. Let's go to Liz Trapp. She put a very good remark in the chat. And I want the people who listen to the recording to benefit from that as well. Very perceptive regarding the parable. So welcome to the group. It's good to have you. Thank you for joining us.
0: I think that to begin with, when Jesus started the parable, both brothers demonstrated themselves to be covetous, or there wouldn't have been a quarrel to begin with. But Jesus, he only takes up with the one brother. And he never says that the man misidentified the problem. It was He had an abundance. The problem came, and what he was condemned for was his solution to it. And oftentimes, we can identify problems correctly, but we leave God out of the equation for our solution. So I think that was... The reason that Jesus called the man out on it.
6: Okay, thank you. Henry? I would like to make a connection with a story that's similar to this, and that was not a parable, but it actually happened that Pharaoh was told that he was going to have seven years of abundance. And he didn't start worrying. He did not become anxious. He basically managed the surplus with an attitude for managing it in the proper world. And I think this is basically because... The whole segment is Jesus saying when the man comes telling that his brother didn't want to share the inheritance, he says, Hey, I just wanted to keep that it is important to guard against all kinds of greed. And then he shares the parable in order to illustrate the problem. And this is exactly what this man is having. Now he's having a surplus, which is supposed to be a blessing, so you can be happy. And that becomes actually the biggest problem for him. And he in his solution. He is planning for something, as we were discussing, that there is even no need because there is no uh, more family or relatives. How are you going to survive all of these benefits that you have? Obviously, they are more than what you need. Even if you need to live 300 years, probably this man was going to have more than enough. So my analogy goes back to compare that with Pharaoh. There were plans for those that did not have. And I don't think this parable. Or this segment of the Bible is referring to giving, but referring to anxiety and to the worries that we put in ourselves. So, in my opinion, in this lesson about stewardship and giving back, we are misapplying a segment that doesn't have anything to do with sharing with others or giving back, but to not create anxiety when there is no need
3: for And that's exactly what Jesus points out, this worry and anxiety. So instead of creating gratitude and saying, I cannot use this if I live 300 years, as somebody said, I have no children, I have no relatives. So let me see how I can turn this into a blessing of someone else as a true son of Abraham to which we have been called. No, he only thinks about himself. He's not giving, he's not sharing, he's just accumulating. And Jesus says this lifestyle, this way of thinking is not going to produce life. Let's read verses 22 to 34, the reflection of Jesus on this and the lessons for the disciples.
4: He said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and a body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your span of life? If then you are not able to do so small a thing as that, why do you worry about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not keep striving for what you are to eat and what you are to drink, and do not keep worrying, for it is the nations of the world that strive after all these things, and your father knows that you need them. Instead, strive for his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well.
3: And let's read three more verses.
4: Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give alms. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is. There your heart will be also.
3: So notice Jesus in his commentary says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry, because what was the man doing? He was worrying. And then he says, do not be afraid, little flock. Your father cares about you. He's going to share the kingdom with you. Notice verse 25, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Some manuscripts try to reconcile it with Matthew, so they read a single cubit to your height. But in the parable, God says to him, this very night your life will be demanded from you. And so in this version, he says, you cannot prolong your life by your worrying. Why do you worry about the rest? And then he brings flowers and the birds as an example of creatures who live not on the principle of extraction, but on the principle of abundance. They rely on the Creator. Of course, they don't have consciousness like you and I, so we could discuss how much they are capable of worrying, you know, but they live from day to day relying that somehow it will be provided for them. And Jesus says it's God who provides for them. And he contrasts it with Solomon. Now, Larry already mentioned that if we have 12 weeks on stewardship, that probably we should cover (laughs) the storyline and how we go from the Garden of Eden to the economy of extraction, Egypt, etc. And how then God, in Deuteronomy 14, 15, after the Exodus, establishes a different type of community and a different type of rules, how they are supposed to share, to tithe even have the second tithe so that they share with those who are needed, the community economy, you know, the concern for the neighbor. Remember in commandment number nine, three times the neighbor is mentioned. It's not going to go away. And if you are supposed to be the blessing to them, remember them. And then once in three years, they have the third tie that they convert into goodies and they eat and rejoice so that they are a blessing to the community and aliens. And it applies to those who share the community with you, even though they are not Jews, they are not part of the same worldview or religion, yet they are supposed to be blessed. So somehow that was missed in the quarter. And then, of course, the message of the prophets. But suffice it to say that Solomon was a practitioner of scarcity, accumulation and greed. And so there was striving in verse 31, The pagans are doing this striving. Solomon did this, but you seek his kingdom and all these things will be given to you. Try to put your energy into something else. And remember where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Which brings us back to verse 21. And this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. So what does it mean to be rich toward God? What does it mean to have a treasure in heaven? What is the contribution that Jesus makes in the storyline? If you look under number six.
9: The thing that puzzles me a lot, and maybe many of us who are born and raised in a Western sort of market-based culture where you specifically were not. And yet your behavior is very, how do I say this? you're a free person freed from the restrictions that you were raised in and you live in a society that allows you to accumulate as much as you want and yet you've chosen a different path and there may be several others here that have had that same kind of upbringing for a western person to orient towards that it's really hard to imagine why you're doing what you're doing. And so if if you have the opportunity before this lesson is completed, would you mind sharing some of that, the mental process that you go through or that chose that? Because I think that's very key to this kind of a lesson and the thing we're talking about today. So that really was my question to you, if you have time to do that today. Okay. Interesting. <laughs>
5: yeah. Michael? I also think of Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan is apparently a pretty well-off guy because he's able to put the injured man, the victim of robbers, put him on his own animal, probably a donkey or whatever it was, and then take him to an inn and pay for future care for the man and promise him, if there's more money, well, I'll take care of that when I come back from my trip. And that parable is about Sharing our abundance when people are in need. And it also shows it isn't the love of money that God considers. It's our duty to love everybody else. And it also shows the hypocrisy of those who thought they were the privileged chosen people. And the real question for me is, how do I put that into my life on a daily basis?
3: Uh, Yes, Uh, I'm not sure I want to go into the parable of Good Samaritan, although it'd be very interesting. But somebody asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus once again answers with a parable and closes with the saying, go and do likewise. So this is how you inherit eternal life. And how? It's the guy who practices different religion from yours. I want you to live like him because he thinks of others. He thinks of being blessing to somebody else of a different tribe. So he is a true son of Abraham. He can't prove it with his genetics, with his genealogy, but he got the message. What is it all about? So eternal life is not about theology. It's about loving the neighbor and sharing with others. And guess what? Even someone of a different religion can get it. And if you love sacrificially, You understood something about the nature of God. Sherry.
0: I really like the ideas of the loving others and of the sharing, the whole mental attitude. But one of the concerns I have is sometimes when we talk about that we just relax and let God take care of us. I think that also has to be balanced with the whole aspect of, like the parable of the talents, we are expected to take good care, to be wise. To be fruitful in the use of our talents and in the use of our time. And that way we can bless more. But I think to just relax and say, well, God will take care of me, I think there's danger in that too. There has to be some balance.
3: And that's definitely not what Jesus tried to say. Do not worry. Be like the birds or the lilies who have no thoughts of themselves. Definitely not. That's not what he intended. So this occupy till I come and the man with the talents who immediately went out and worked hard to make sure that the talents that the capital that he received multiplies yeah it needs to be a balanced approach but what is this having the treasure in heaven I'm pretty sure that you have heard the tv evangelists saying that your mansion in heaven depends on how much money you send to my ministry. A blatant abuse of what Jesus says. So, what is this treasure in heaven all about? What does it mean to be rich towards God? How do you do
6: that, Henry? Yes, thank you. I'm just going to follow up on Sherry's comment, and I will answer that question. Appreciate that comment, Sherry, because again, that will be a misapplication of this portion of the Bible. Right? It's not about giving, and it is not about do not work or do not do anything the same jesus was a carpenter he didn't lay down waiting for god to provide him and in response to the questions what was this all about how do you build mansions or treasures in heaven i think that we'll go back again to genesis 22:18, which jesus is just bringing it back again to surface In your offspring, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. And he is making that connection again to these people that has been living to themselves, forgetting about the rest of society. They were called, we are called as children of God to bless others. It may not be with money if you don't have any. So this is not about become rich so you can give, it's give what you have. Give all that you can in your capacity. I don't see Adam and Eve being anxious and worrying about all the abundance that was around them in the Garden of Eden when they were the only ones. It was just now go and take care of this. Care them just like your father has taken care of you. Uh, that was the command for Adam and Eve to overlook into that creation.
3: Yes, Henry. And it's uh, very perceptive because the man who comes to Jesus at the start of this pericope says, my brother doesn't want to divide the estate, the land, the promised land with me the way I feel it should be. So basically, he's concerned with the land. For them, the land has economic value but they see it also as an inheritance. It's a land promised by God. And Jesus responds by saying, you know, actually, God is changing that. Life doesn't work like this. The kingdom of God doesn't work like this. God is concerned not only with this small piece of land in the Middle East. His kingdom is for everybody. It's a kingdom of grace and new life for people of every race and every place and every color and everywhere. And if you don't have this mindset of generosity, then even if the family feud is resolved amicably, you are going to miss what I am doing and what I came to do with the kingdom of God. That the father wants to give you the kingdom, and so there is no need to be afraid, even though you are a little flock. He operates on the principle of generosity, and you are going to miss this in life. Rita?
8: I think perhaps one of the things that Jesus is saying in verse 29, it says, and do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. He's saying to them, don't put these concerns above everything else. Don't let them overtake your life. God has got your back is an expression we might use today. God's got your back. He's going to look after you. So if you need it, you will get it. But you have to... Do your bit for God. It's not a tit-for-tat, a quid pro quo or anything, because God wants to do that anyway. But you can only receive that abundance from God if you will let God give you that abundance.
3: Yes, and this is the contribution of Jesus. So as Sherry pointed out, if you allow this to get out of proportion, if you neglect it, then the community needs to take care of you. Somebody else needs to take care of you because you need to eat, you need to have your basic needs met. And then you are a burden to someone else. So that's not the solution either. Get rid of everything. But if you allow these concerns to be out of proportion, then you end up like a rich fool that you see only yourself and are worried and you experience anxiety and you don't see what God is doing in this world. That the Father is a loving one who provides, who brings the abundance and takes care of you as you're back, as you said. And so this is the major contribution of Jesus. And so notice that the treasure in heaven is not something. Heaven is God's fear of created reality. It's something which is going to come down to this earth, to this sphere. And God wants us to think not only in terms of economy of extortion, how do I get more out of this? You know, the the idea that you spend as much as you can, but the Bible says, save as much as you can so that you can give as much as you can. And before the quarter is over, we are going to talk about, okay, what is the Old Testament model? What is the New Testament model of living? That When God says, give 10% away, it's not only thinking about God, thinking about the community, but it's about making budget, thinking, how am I going to use 90%? If I give away a significant portion of my income, I need to start thinking seriously, how am I going to manage this? So this treasure is not only something that you get possession of once you die, but it's something that you experience now when you realize that God has got your back, that he provides, that he's the father of abundance who blesses people every day. All right, Aaron.
7: I need to take my own advice here, what I'm about to say. But it just dawned on me that, at least for me, oftentimes, thinking of giving and being a generous person, we think of monetary giving. And Henry had a really good point that it's more than that. And you asked the question about What does it mean to put treasure in heaven and be rich toward God? And earlier, someone said that the things that we take to heaven are basically, in my own words, our character and our relationships. And that includes our relationship with God. And so treasure in heaven is going to be relationships. It's going to be our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. And so our relationship with God's children around us is basically, are we investing in other people? Are we saying, I gave my tithe and my offering, and so I'm a generous person, but neglecting to do a kindness or just invest in the relationship with other people?
3: And when you say, are we investing in other people? Let's broaden it. I'm investing in others, meaning the community, meaning the planet, Because the belief in the soon coming of Jesus can lead you easily to the thinking, the sooner we devastate this planet, the sooner Jesus will come. Or the more we devastate the planet, the sooner Jesus will come. And that's not a responsible living because Revelation says God is going to destroy those who destroy the earth. Some people can be so heavenly minded that there is no earthly usefulness for them. They are so insulated from the community that they don't see that the flourishing of the community is, as Jeremiah says, you will be blessed to the extent that the community where you are is prospering and flourishing because they feel as long as I can escape somewhere into some solitude and solitary place so that I am saved, like Jonah, I am going to climb this mountain and look how you guys are going to get it because you deserve it. He doesn't care about Nineveh and the community. And Jesus shows, guys, you did not get the idea of God's kingdom, who God is and what he's constantly doing, how his thinking is based, it's other centered and towards blessing and generosity and sharing and giving. I want you to know that in order to be happy, you need to have this mindset. Otherwise, you are not going to be happy. And so that's the essence of this lesson.
7: With God's economy, there is no loss. When you give, you don't lose anything because God's economy is love. And when you give love, it grows.
3: Yes. Thank you. Very perceptive. Larry. I'm
9: reminded of Paul when he said, and I'm going to paraphrase a bit. He said, he's learned how to be at peace with having a lot and of having little. And he uses the word content, but I believe in the context of what we're talking today, you could substitute that word and the implication is that there's abundance, that he's had both an abundance of a lot and an abundance of little. And he's learned to be content in those conditions and that contentment or peace comes from understanding the concept of what true abundance is.
3: And notice that Paul says that he had to learn that. So this idea that the moment you are converted, it comes ready, delivered from heaven in a package form. You didn't get that from reading the Bible. It's something that you learn as you mature, as you grow, as you go through spiritual life. And stages of faith and development and maturity, it doesn't come automatically. Just because you have mental assent to certain doctrine doesn't mean that you process it and you leave it out. So that's an important. Jane?
2: I would like to add to our discussion by a comment that I got from Christ Object Lessons, chapter 20, that says, To live for self is to perish. Covetousness, the desire of benefit for self, sake, cuts the soul off from life. It is the spirit of Satan to get to draw to self, but it is the Spirit of Christ to give, to sacrifice self for the good of others. And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life. This life is in his Son. He that has the Son has life. He that has not the Son, the Son of God has not life. Wherefore, he says, take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. So I would just like to add to our discussion that to want to get more and more leaves no space for us to be rich towards God. So to want more of God, to be like him, to sacrifice self for others would be more beneficial. Thank you.
3: Okay. So what does it mean to be rich towards God?
2: To so Want more of God To have the son of life, because this is life eternal. To have everything in God. And when we have Jesus, then we will want to sacrifice everything like he did for the sake of others. Thank you.
3: Okay, thank you. John? When
6: we consider self and want more and hoard things... We misrepresent God because God is a God of abundance and we need to reflect God in what we do and give him glory. And hence, to reflect God is to be generous, to reflect him as he really is. I listened to something recently on the internet by Denzel Washington, the actor. It's a speech he's given a number of times to students and it's well worth listening to. He makes some excellent points. Some of the points are, put God first. It's not what you have, it's how you use what you have. It's not how much you have, it's how you use what you have for others, Is meaning. The most selfish thing you can do is help other people because it does you good. So it's well worth listening to Denzel Washington.
3: So to be rich towards God, Jesus shows that do not be afraid, although you are just a little flock. The father has your back, as Rita mentioned. You need to withdraw from the world of fear. The dominant economy is grounded in fear. That's why people need to keep others in check so that they are afraid. Mantra of scarcity says that you do not have enough. You have not done enough. You are not enough. You are not good enough. The advertisements remind us that if you don't have this, you cannot be secure. You cannot be happy. You are not there yet. And that's why Jesus says, commodity is going to bring fear that you are not having enough, that others are having more. You start comparing yourself. But if you think about God, who is the creator, he gives. The man in the parable never gave, he just took. And the psyche, the life, is sustained by giving. It's a different treasure. It's not the treasure that erodes. It's not the treasure that wears out. It's not the treasure that perishes. Remember, Jesus speaks about this moth and the thieves. In those days, if you had some special clothes that could be easily destroyed. So Jesus contrasts the commodity with creation. Creation is presided by God who generously guarantees abundance. If you are concerned with commodity, you will always live in fear and in worry. All right. It's more important to understand this shift that Jesus brings into the storyline. The rest of the lesson deals with you can't take anything with you. Remember, once you die, you leave everything behind. Now, you don't know what you have unless you periodically update your balance sheet. So the lesson speaks about part with your personal needs and be aware what you have. It speaks about the deathbed charity, to whom are you going to leave things, so once your family is taken care of, make sure you remember the community, remember the church and leaving legacy. But it's more important to understand the shift that Jesus brought into the storyline and understanding than covering all this. So unscrupulous people, as I put under number seven, can abuse these things easily for nefarious purposes. And we already mentioned, how do we balance these things so that we are not gullible? We can discern trickery. We can see the exploitation in the name of God, in the name of religion, or just for selfish reasons that somebody wants to use followers of Jesus for their selfish purposes with legitimate ways that we, our money, our gifts, our talents, and it was already mentioned that monetary blessings are not the only ones that we have, can be blessings both to us, to our immediate family, and to the wider cause of God. Now, back to what Larry mentioned. Environment in which I grew up, of course, was tainted with the leftist Marxist understanding. In one of the lessons, I think it's the next one, number 11, we are going to speak about the fact that in certain circles, the idea is as long as you solve the question of the possessions, then the society is going to be happy and all the society is going to be happy. And you realize by observing the life around you that this does not bring happiness and the society is still hypocritical because the ruling classes, they have special shops, special treatments, special privileges. So they just use the narrative to make sure that their life is nice and best and ultimately they don't care about uh, everybody else. Although there are certain procedures as a part of the state-run and planned economy that make sure that nobody is terribly poor or that people who cannot work for themselves are to some extent taken care of. And it's just growing up and processing these things that you realize that uh, seeing life through these optics is not the solution. And being critical enough towards the stories, whether it's the leftist or the rightist story from the left or from the right, that that's not the solution. And seeing what the Bible and God offers as a better answer. So, Larry, that would be probably a quick answer. Colette?
0: I'd kind of like to voice the question that Liz just put in the chat. She says, this is all good to us in our first world environment. What about the person who is literally starving to death, whose children are crying from hunger? Would we still advise that mom to not worry about what there is to eat? Just trust to be rich towards God. I really struggle with that in my own personal life. I sit right now in a very comfortable position. God has really blessed our business and the farm is doing well. But there was a time when I was a single mom and didn't have enough to eat. And... I've seen both sides of that. And I take a look at what's going on in the world right now. And I don't have enough pennies in my bank account to make a difference in much of anybody's life. But her question is one that's really heavy on my heart. What do we say to these people?
3: Yeah, and complex problems don't have simple solutions. So if the solution is that you and I feed the whole world, there comes the words of Jesus, you will always have poor among yourselves. You can't solve the problem that way. But if you are insensitive to the needs of people in your vicinity and do nothing because it's their problem or they themselves caused it, then your heart gets hardened and it's going to hit you in the relationships which are the most precious to you. So back to the parable of the last judgment, who else benefited from your religion? Let's go to Ashley.
12: So something for me that came up as Colette was asking that question is something I heard on a podcast many years ago with, I think, Elizabeth Gilbert. I don't know how many are familiar with the book she's written. And I think she was being interviewed by Rob Bell. So some names, but she had this really interesting analogy and I thought it was a cool perspective, like, where do you place fear in your life? Like, what role does that play? And her idea, I don't even think she came up with it, but the one she shared was that in your car, which is your basically decision making your life, the direction you're going, fear gets to sit in the backseat. We're thankful for fear. It served us well in the past. It helps protect us in some ways but it's in the backseat and it doesn't get to touch the steering wheel. (laughs) So it's good to listen to, but ultimately we're not going to use that to necessarily like make all our decisions. So it's helpful information, but we don't want fear to like drive everything we're doing. So it is a balance and it can be tricky at times, but that kind of helped me put in perspective how fear fits in.
3: (laughs) And the fact that the father understands So it depends to a great extent how you are wired, what is the level of amino butyric acid in your organism, that some people will worry more and experience fear to a greater extent, but God understands. And as long as we are willing to live in the Father's world, we can become the blessing to someone else. And the more we concentrate on ourselves, the more worried and anxious we will be Sean, Jesus was confronted by very practical problems that
10: aren't easily translated. His solutions aren't easily translated into our modern world, as was pointed out early on in our conversation here. It's troubling. Millions of people are starving. It's troubling. So we do what we can to feed them. We do what we can to help. And I think part of addressing... The very practical question that you placed in number seven is an important consideration here. What are the legitimate ways we can use money for both our family and for the cause of God? It's important. And also, addressing how do we go about making practical, educated decisions with respect to who do you trust to give our money and our resources? Who do you trust? And I have tried to be careful to select those agencies some of which are within our own denomination, the majority of which I have found are very trustworthy that I contribute to that are outside of our denomination, but groups that can help actually feed people, clothe people, shelter people. I think these are generous solutions to how we can give from our abundance, etc. But these are tough issues that disturb me greatly. And I want to close by an encounter I had this week. I have been purchasing fruit from a man who comes up into our mountainous region from the valley below where they grow nice fruit. For the last, oh, 37 years or so, I've been purchasing fruit from this man who generously comes up here and provides for us. While I was there, he told me a disturbing story about the people he purchases or gleans or picks fruit from in the valley, then he brings it up here and how he was ruthlessly ripped off by one of these people that he purchases fruit from. And it turns out that the person that he was ripped off from happened to be a member of our congregation. And that this gentleman that I purchased the fruit from was not just disturbed, but was activated by his experience to do what this man should have done in the beginning. So this man, who is not a Christian, that I purchased fruit from, he went and he confronted this man directly, and and was able to settle the score there, but also give some lesson to this gentleman about what it means to be one of Christ's followers. And I only raise that as an illustration because it stuck with my heart and my mind very deeply. That in all of our effort to be generous and provide our abundance, not be anxious about how God is going to clothe our lives and feed us. We need to especially make sure that we do as Jesus did. At least I need to make sure that we do as Jesus did and not wear our denomination on our sleeve, not carry the flag that this is who we are, this is what I do, but quietly go about and do what Jesus did and love people in a practical way. So thank you very much.
3: And yes, it's supposed to disturb you. Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan saying, someone from the other religion got it better than you do. Look at how much people are willing to give to emotional causes with crowdfunding, yet systemic help is lagging behind because for that you need planning and long-term thinking. Back to what Colette mentioned, yes... When the Samaritan saw immediate need, he acted on that. When Jesus sees the crowd, and tells the disciples they cannot go home because they will not be able to travel. We need to feed them now. But the next day, he tells them, I know why you are here. You saved money on lunch yesterday, and I refuse to do this consistently for you because you are taking advantage, you know, learned helplessness. So I am not going to do this for you. And so it's a tough balancing act. And if you are gullible, then neither you profit, people around you do not benefit from it. And God is not glorified by that. And that's why, as Jesus says, you love God with your mind as well. Just blindly doing what God commanded you in Deuteronomy or elsewhere is not going to do. Jesus says, guys, let me tell you, I had something completely else in mind and you misunderstood. The good thing is that God is always there to help us to guide us through this journey and to help us to grow and hopefully we understand these things better now than 20 years ago or how long have you been around growing in love and truth and grace let's go to bobby joe about what's the point of Jesus' story and then analogically henry to conclude by saying what he mentioned that the story in luke 12 has nothing to do with money and riches ultimately so bobby joe
11: I have been deeply moved by this particular lesson and what it's calling me to do because I see it not just from the standpoint of dollars and cents, but also from time. I have been often moved by stories of people who have been in situations of genocide or the Holocaust or terrorist attacks and without consideration for the length of their life in that moment, they see the need of someone who is in distress and they put their life on the line. And I'm asking myself, that's exactly what Christ did. He saw the great need of humanity and he put his life on the line to save us. Is that what I'm called to do? That's pretty hard. And some time ago, we had the lesson on the crucible and the call to be poured out wine and broken bread. You know, the only time that wine is poured out and Bread is left broken on the table is in the economy of abundance. If you're in a starvation mode, not one drop of wine is going to be left spilled on the table. Not one chunk of bread is going to be left on that table unused. Right? But in God's abundance, you can spill out wine. You can be that broken bread. And is that what God is calling me to be? It's a huge challenge that I'm asking myself. How can I allow Christ to so transform my selfish? self-centered self, that I would be willing to be that.
3: Yes, thank you. And that's the point, for example, of the parable of the sower. You and I read it and start worrying, am I good enough? Am I the soul that brings glory to God? But it's not about, am I good enough? It's a story about abundance of God who throws and scatters the seeds everywhere. He feeds the birds and throws to them and he throws it on the path where it will not bring any meaningful harvest. Yet God is like this. And you and I are not asked to be the savior. The Savior has already come and it's not you, but we are asked to be the blessing. We cannot use money and wealth to insulate ourselves from anxiety. That money and wealth are poor insulators against anything. That it's only being anchored in God that will do it and being part of seeing what he is doing in our lives and the lives of others that he's going to do. So thank you very much for those insights, Bobby Joe. And Henry? Although you already alluded
6: to it. I think that the discussion has nothing to do with money or with riches. And that's the risk of having, sometimes in our study guides, this type of out-of-context text to try to improve charity, tithe-giving, offerings, and that only creates a whole lot of more problems because then we cannot address those social injustices, unfair distribution of wealth, and et cetera that comes from it. I'm sorry to say this, sometimes when these type of lessons are written, are written from the perspective of an Anglo-centric culture that forget about the rest of humanity. Adventism is no longer a majority in the Anglo-speaking world. It's these third-world countries that sometimes it's so difficult to equate then and have these conversations that will come to a good conclusion. So that's the risk, and this is why... This comes, just put in a text that looks good for one purpose, but actually doesn't make
3: justice. Let's pray. Lord, you know how all of us struggle with fear and anxiety and worry. And the more we look at ourselves and inwardly, the worse it gets. And so we pray that once again, we look at you and what you are doing in our own lives. In the world around us and see the positive things, how you have not given up on this world and how your Holy Spirit works on the minds and consciousness of other people and the amazing sacrifices that people who do not know you and do not profess to belong to the right religion are still able to make. Help us to see that you want to give the kingdom to us, although we are just a small flock that you bless us every day and help us to be such a blessing to other people and not use our worries and fears as a way of insulating ourselves from the suffering in this world. Thank you that we serve a God like you who brings us to be outward-looking, other-centered, and daughters and sons of a heavenly Father who cares about all. We pray for that in the name of Jesus. Amen.